There's a red Camry out there with a window down. Go get it. It's raining out. Aren't I good at announcements? You learn a lesson, Brian. Pastor Brown. Pastor Stewart. Reverend Sadar. Tony's a... uh, He doesn't look like a grandfather, does he? He is, though. He is one. Yeah, he's a grandfather. We have a special... I just got a a little message right before I parked that Paul Matthews asked for prayer. And many of you may know that he is facing a surgery which he's been anticipating now for some months on Friday. And he he asked for prayer, specifically that our great physician would oversee the operation that he's having. And, and, uh, of course, it's our heart's desire to pray for the best possible outcome, and one that exceeds his expectations and Colleen's expectations. So we're praying for a faithful servant, who has co-labored with me now for over 30 years, quiet, professional, and faithful all the way. So let's all approach the throne of grace for Paul. Father, tonight we consider it an honor to pray for a fellow servant and co-laborer in Christ that you will do more than he could ask for because you're in the business of exceeding and going way beyond what we could ask or think. So we present Paul to you and before your very throne of grace and we even picture him standing there and we make this request for him. That indeed the great physician, our great physician, would oversee this coming surgery on Friday. And that is your presence, Father, through the Holy Spirit and the presence of your Son would be in that operating room. We pray for the best possible outcome in your view, which will be to exceed beyond what we could ask or think in terms of blessing for him. We also pray for Colleen, who has been with him in this ordeal as one one person with him. And while we're at it, Father, we pray for others. We have heard even recently that require surgeries, some lesser, and some of equal seriousness and we pray that you'll do the same for them we thank you for this opportunity tonight in Jesus name amen you'll notice that our first I got three or four irons in the fire right now and you we're told to strike while the irons hot so I got some hot irons the first iron is in the doctrine of justification which is Romans doctrines it emerged from 150-some hours of Romans, and it grows out from it. It's a different series, though. It's called the Doctrine Romans Doctrines, new series, The Doctrine of Justification. I've only begun to fight on that one. We've paid our dues on that one, and it's going to come out in a... Hopefully, we can condense it into three or four parts. First part's out there. I just wanted you to know that on the third page, and this is entirely my oversight on the third page which is the second piece of paper at the top there is a reference Titus 3 the verse Titus 3 and in it begins with 3 5 on the top there it should be 3 4 and then it goes into 5 when the generosity and philanthropy of God our Savior made an appearance etc it should be verse 4 just scratch out 5 and put 4 there And the second iron in the fire is doing and living theology, which is only in the very first stages. 
Third one, some of you might like, some of you might not like. I've decided after a distillation with commentary on Romans, which we've put most of it's out there on the table or in the website, I've decided to take a stand and a responsibility and do a translation of Romans. That means minus the commentary and with just enough intratextual insertions to give the sense. And I believe, I'm going to read it again, I'm going to read the whole book of Romans, not the whole thing tonight because I only got half of it. But it came together a lot faster than I thought. So this will also be part of Romans. I didn't think I'd be doing it so soon. Romans the epistle, translation. Now, before you have your own preconceptions about this, I want you to notice this translation is the fruit of 156 hours of us being together times about 10 or 15 hours that have gone into this study. And so I hope you'll understand. As a pastor, I find that my job is, my job description is quite simple. Second Corinthians one twenty four: we are helpers of your joy. And Jesus said in John 15, 11, I've spoken these things to you that your joy would be full, that my very joy would be in you, he said, and that your joy would be full. And I pray that my joy in doing this as a shepherd teacher will be transferred to you, but then much more, that our Lord's own joy in this great document called Romans will be communicated to you. I think this has more potential of helping your joy and elevating you in grace than anything we've done before, and including all the exposition we've done up to this time. So I'm going to pray. My prayer is also that the Holy Spirit will make this very clear to you and that he'll rivet these truths into your soul. So call me Phoebe tonight because Phoebe was the person who delivered this letter to Romans and probably performed it for all the churches there together. And so there'll be a little bit of performance going on here as I pick out different voices that Paul uses in Romans, as you know. So I'm going to begin tonight. I don't know how far we'll get. I have eight chapters translated, and that's a lot more responsibility on my part, a translation, than just a paraphrase. So again, there'll be just enough. I'm not going to give each verse. I'm just going to give the parts, the chapters. There'll be just enough inserted in the text, intratextual comments that survived my the cutting floor here just to give you a sense of what's being said so that as Nehemiah 8, 8 through 10 says, they translated and gave the sense and the people went out rejoicing because of the understanding that derived from that translation. Interpretation is translation. So you can't interpret without translating. And one of the most important things we can do is interpret. And... Translation is interpretation. So here we go. And Father, I ask that you, by your spirit of grace and truth, rivet these truths from this remarkable, extraordinary document, which is still as fresh today as the moment it was inspired through your apostle. We pray that the Holy Spirit will rivet these truths into our soul so that we will be a living epistle of what is written, an epistle written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Introduction, Romans 1, 1 to 17. This is Roman numeral 1, introduction, Romans 1, 1 to 17. Romans chapter 1, from Paul, an imperial slave of Christ Jesus, the King of Kings. I was effectively summoned to be an apostle, the King's herald, set apart and limited to the task of proclaiming the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy writings. This gospel and those sacred writings are all about his son, who is from the royal seed of David, according to human hereditary lineage, who was demonstrated to have been all along the divine son of God with omnipotent power, exerted by the spirit of sanctification 
also known as the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. An act that God assures, that assures the resurrection of all human beings, as we have noted, for all human beings are destined to experience the power of God unto salvation. Verse 5, It is through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, that we received grace and apostleship, the authorization and the power to bring about the allegiance of faith in all the nations for the sake of his name as a preview of all the nations coming to him in worshipful adoration and allegiance. Verse 6, you are among these who have been effectually summoned to belong to Jesus Christ and to participate in his obedient faithfulness in the dynamic sphere of love. You'll note this is still expanded, but not quite as much as before. Close of verse 6, even in the course of this evil age and before his universal salvific appearing. Verse 7, another paragraph, I won't do this to every verse. To all those who are in Rome, loved and elected by God, who have been called into being as saints, the people set apart to God, to whom the Son of Man distributes his royal power and kingdom by authorization of his Father, the Ancient of Days. This I derive from Daniel 7, who is delighted to give you the kingdom. To you, be justifying, sanctifying, and elevating grace and the messianic livingness that is harmonizing and unifying peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news about your faith is being broadcasted in all the world. Certainly God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit, my whole being. In the proclaiming of the gospel about his son that I constantly mention you in my prayers, always asking in addition that if somehow in God's will, if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For you see, verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart a spiritual gift to you. That gift being the proclamation of the gospel in all its inclusive fullness so that you will be strengthened and preserved in the agona, the ordeal that is the juncture of the ages. Verse 12, that is, so that we may be mutually encouraged by elevating grace through each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, siblings, that I have often planned to come to you in order that I might have some fruit among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. But I was hindered until now. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, as they're called by the Greeks, both to the wise, as the well-taught Jews and educated Greeks consider themselves, and to the foolish, whom the well-taught Jews call Gentiles and refined Greeks call pagans. Lots of prejudices and biases here. Verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the very good news, the gospel in all its fullness, to you who are in Rome also, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this very good news, because it is experienced as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 17, I say not ashamed, because by it the righteousness of God, his saving act in Christ and in the Spirit, is apocalyptically revealed from God's faithfulness in Christ Jesus, to Christ's faithfulness, in which we who believe have the privilege to participate. Just as it is written, the righteous one, that's Jesus and all of humanity in him, will live because of faithfulness, that is, Christ's faithful obedience to the death of the cross, interpretive of Habakkuk 2.4. Part 2, Roman numeral 2, this takes us for a little ways. This is what I call a dialectic of contradictory gospels. 
Romans 1.18 to 4.25. It's a dialogue, a dialectic. It's kind of a Socratic dialogue. Two people are speaking. And because this has not been discerned, people assume that Paul was either confused or incoherent. So Romans 1.18, Paul is speaking. He says, now let me sum up for you the view of the Gentiles held by my opponent. Please notice that. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is being apocalyptically revealed as coming down from heaven upon all the idolatrous impiety and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which can be known of God is plainly seen by them. For God has manifested it to them. For ever since the creation of the universe, God's invisible attributes both his eternal power and divinity are understood being clearly perceived through what he has made. As a result, they are without excuse because knowing God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. Instead, their opinions became worthless and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became foolish and as the object of their worship, They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of a corruptible man and of birds and quadrupeds and reptiles. For this reason, God gave them over in the cravings of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed for the ages. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to disgraceful passions. Their females exchanged the natural function for that which is contrary to nature. And the males, likewise, letting go of natural relations with females, became inflamed in their desire for one another. Males in males doing shameful acts and receiving in themselves the punishment appropriate to their perversions. And just so, or so, verse eight twenty eight. just as they did not consider God worthy of being in their consciousness, God gave them over to a worthless mind to do what is improper. They are filled to the brim with all kinds of unrighteousness, maliciousness, greed, and vice. They are full of envy, murder, discord, treachery, and malevolence. They are gossipers, slanders, God-forsaken. Contrivers of harm and disobedient to parents, they are senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Though they know the requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they also heartily approve of those who practice them. Paul's opponent's view of the pagans, whom Paul had already said the righteousness of God is revealed for them. Chapter 2 then, but I, Paul, reply, therefore you, writer of Romans 1, 18 to 32, oh mere man, you are without excuse. In fact, every one of you who judges others like this is without excuse. For while you are judging another, you are condemning yourself. Since you, the self-appointed judge, Do the same things. Paul's opponent now steps in. And he says, he reacts in verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God upon those who practice such things is based on the truth. Paul replies, but do you think, O man, that any one of you who judges those who practice these things yet do the same things, that you will escape this so-called wrathful judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of God's beneficence and the clemency of his patience, being ignorant that the benevolence of God is leading you to repentance? The judge in need of repentance. Verse 5. This is Paul 
but he's saying what the opponent says. He says, now you, my opponent, say this. Verse 5. On the basis of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath for the day of wrath and the apocalypse of the righteous judgment of God who will pay back each and every one on the basis of his works. Starting in verse 7, this is extremely important to be understood as not Paul, but his opponent. As you, my opponents say, verse 7, on the one hand, God gives the life of the coming age to those who by persevering in doing good aim at glory and honor and immortality. But on the other hand, you say that to those who through selfish ambition and disobedience of the truth obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress upon every person's soul who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek. For you say rightly, Paul says, there is no favoritism with God. That's a quote of Deuteronomy 10.17. But you add this. For as many as sin outside the law will also perish outside the law. And all who sin within the law will be judged by the law. For according to your vision of the good news. Air quotes. And this is where the heart of the matter is struck. It is not the hearers of the Torah or the law, who will be justified by God. But the doers of the law will be justified by the law. So Paul puts parentheses in here. Paul, 2.14 and 15. Remember that 2.13 continues to 2.16. Paul says, so what about the Gentiles? Who do not have the law, but who instinctively do what the law requires. They are a Torah themselves, the law themselves. They demonstrate that the code of conduct required by the Torah, the law, is written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness among themselves. Their thoughts sometimes accuse and sometimes excuse them. The opponent's view continues. Paul was rudely rude enough to interrupt him in 2.13. The opponent's view continued from 2.13 where he's talking about the doers of the law will be justified by the law on the day when God judges the secrets of people. But in 16b, Paul inserts this. Well, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of people through the Messiah, Jesus, who incidentally received their judgment. 17, Paul continues. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and you rest on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve the things that are superior because you are well taught from the law, all these things you say of yourself, you are completely convinced in verse 19 that you are a guide to the blind a light to those in darkness, those benighted Gentiles in their outer darkness, an instructor of the ignorant. That's Isaiah 1, 2 to 4, and 42, 6 to 7, as well as 49, 6. Having in the Torah the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Then you who teach others, don't you teach yourself You who preach do not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, you commit adultery. You who detest idols, in your own words, rob temples. You, boaster in the law, through your blatant violation of the law, you dishonor God. For as it is written in Isaiah 52, 5, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. From 
For verse 25, for circumcision is indeed beneficial if it is part of a regimen in which you perfectly observe the whole Torah. But if you're a transgressor of the law in any point, then your so-called circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You, O preacher, might might as well still have your foreskin. That too crude for you? Well, you're holier than Paul, so I, I can't avoid comment. I'm sorry. Verse 26. And if that is so, then on the other hand, if the Gentile whom you reduce to a foreskin, that's what Gentiles were called by them. It's familiar to a term that we, is used often today. If the Gentile whom you reduce to a foreskin keeps the requirement of the law, will not this foreskin be considered as circumcision? Verse 27, And the one who by natural condition is uncircumcised, but who fulfills the general requirement of Torah, such as loving his neighbor, will judge you who through the observance of the mere external letter and and ritual circumcision violate the Torah. For I'm sure you'd agree opponent of mine, one is not a Jew merely by an external observance of the letter of Torah, nor is real circumcision something visible in the flesh. The opponent is forced to agree in verse 29. On the contrary, the real Jew is one in the hidden part, and circumcision is of the heart, as Jeremiah taught. The circumcision of the flesh, according to this opponent, I put this in a a small comment, somehow converts the heart. The ritual affects the heart. Paul interjects again, though, by the Spirit. By the Spirit. A Jew is a Jew by the Spirit. And not the mere letter. That is, it is not the ritual act of circumcision that converts the heart, but the action of the Spirit on the heart, pouring out the love of God in the heart, that makes the real Jew, whose praise or commendation comes not from men, but from God. Chapter 3, Paul continues, tell me then, obviously he's talking to someone here, tell me then, what does the Jew have over the Gentile, asks the apostle to the Gentiles? Or what advantage is there of ritual circumcision? The opponent says in verse 2, well, much in every way. First of all, they were entrusted with God's sayings. That is his divine oracles recorded in the scriptures. They have the Bible. Verse 3, so Paul says, Paul says, so what if some were unfaithful? Even though they had the Bible. Does their unbelief, and here's a big question for you, Does their unbelief make the faithfulness of God ineffective? The opponent says, well, certainly not. God must be true or faithful, Psalm 51, 4, even if everyone is a liar. Hmm. That's a Pastor Brown inserted comment. That's from Psalm 116, 11. As it is written that you, God, may be justified by your words and overcome when you are judged. Paul, verse 5, but if our wrongdoing demonstrates God's righteous justice, what should we, that's both you and I, conclude? Should we conclude that God is unjust to bring wrath on us? I'm speaking here by human analogy, he says. Verse 6, the opponent, of course not. Then how could God judge the world? Paul, but if the truthfulness of God is amplified to his glory by my lie, why am I, like this world under God's wrath, also being judged as a sinner? Indeed, why not just say what we, my associates and I, my missionary team and I, Paul says, are slanderously reported to be saying. 
I got to add this. If you're a preacher and you haven't been slanderously reported as saying this, you haven't been preaching it correctly. As we have been slanderously reported as saying, that we should do evil so that good things may come. The opponent says, well, their judgment speaking again of the whole world, unless they get circumcised and come into the fold and obey the law. Their judgment is deserved. Verse 9. Paul says, what, what should we conclude then? Are we? You and I are Jews. We're, we're both Jews. Are we better off Can you say we're better off than this world who are deserving of the wrathful judgment of God? Are we better off? The opponent, well, (laughs) that's me, that's it. Not in every respect, Paul. Because, I'm asking you this because we, that both you and I, as those who proclaim the truth of the Hebrew scriptures as teachers of Torah, and they both were, We previously, in many of our messages, have accused everyone, both Jews and Greeks, of being under the power of sin. A suprahuman power called sin. As it is written, here comes a flurry of punches. There is not a righteous person, not even one. There is not one who understands. There is not one who seeks God. All of them without exception have turned aside. This is Yahweh's survey of all mankind. At the same time and together they have become worthless. Yahweh sees this simultaneously all of humankind and all of time. Not the Gentiles or the pagans. Everybody in Adam. There is not one who does right by acting benevolently, not even a single one. These are quotes from Psalm 14, 1 to 3, extraordinarily important passage, and 53, 1 to 3, so extraordinary, it's repeated there. Ecclesiastes seven twenty also comments on it. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are vehicles for deceit. You and me, preacher, we've both preached on these. Psalm 5, 9. The venom of asps and cobras is under their lips, like the venom sack under the pit viper. Psalm 140 and verse 3. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is all humankind surveyed by Yahweh in a single sweeping gaze. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are wherever they go. And they have not come to know the truth or the path, rather, of peace. Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. There is no reverential awe of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, 1. Now, Paul continues here in verse 19 after the scriptural demonstration of universal sinfulness on the part of all humankind. And he says this, Now it is obvious to us, you and me, that whatever the Torah, the whole Old Testament here is being referenced, whatever the whole Old Testament says, it speaks to those under the law in order that every mouth may be stopped. May I quote Pastor Brown again? Shut up, everybody. The opponent jumps on the wagon here and he says, and the whole world be shown to deserve God's wrathful judgment. In other words, he says the way out of this is circumcision and the law. And then he quotes, this is a critical, pivotal verse. I have to introduce it this way. Psalm 143, 2. 
or the Septuagint 142.2. For no human being, he's quoting a scripture here, no human being, literally all flesh, will not be justified in his sight. Now, I have to say this. The, the preacher quotes this because he's going to say, except by the works of the law. But Paul jumped right in here. And you know what he said? Paul interjects, by deeds prescribed by the law. That's not in the psalm passage. So, no human being will be justified in his sight. And Paul jumps in, by deeds prescribed by the law. The prescriptions listed in Moses in the Pentateuch. For through the law comes only the consciousness of sin. Ouch! It's not in there. Through the law comes the consciousness of sin, only the consciousness of sin, not justification like you teach. 21 through 26, a preview of what's coming in chapters 5 through 8. Paul, it's all Paul here now in verse, the next few verses. But now apart from the commandments of the law, the saving righteousness of God has been manifested, which is fully attested by the law itself and all the prophets. That is, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ revealed to all who have faith. For there is no distinction. It makes no difference whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. For all sin, verse 23, all are under the power of sin and complicit with it and fall hopelessly short of the glory of God and all are justified unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly on the cross as a mercy seat through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood Jesus' sacrificial death for the demonstration of God's righteousness. God, I said. God, I say. Who passed over the sins that were previously committed by his forbearing patience in verse 26. Yes, I said. For a demonstration of his saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis, the juncture of the two ages, to show that he, God, is perfectly just and the justifier of the one by means of faithfulness, that being Jesus. In other words, God justifies Jesus. You don't believe it? Read 1 Timothy 3.16. It's coming up in our other iron in the fire. 27, the opponent. I love this question. Where is boasting then? Where can I boast about my part? You ain't got no part. You ain't even in this play. Paul says, shut out completely. (laughs) I love the word. I love this word. The opponent says, well, on the authority of what kind of Torah or authoritative teaching, what kind of authoritative teaching can you point to that says that posting is totally eliminated? (laughs) That was Fraser Crane. (laughs) But... A Torah about, uh, when he's mad, a Torah, is this, are you referring to an authoritative teaching about works? That is, is boasting shut out according to some teaching that you have about works? Paul says, no, not at all. I'm talking about an authoritative teaching regarding Messiah's faithfulness. That's also called my gospel. For we, Paul says, now he's talking about my associates and I, our missionary team, bank on the fact that a person is justified by by a faithfulness apart from the works of the law altogether. Verse 29, 
Paul continues, or is he the God only of the Jews? Is he not God also of the Gentiles? Now, either the teacher or Paul can say this. Paul's probably saying it to answer for himself. Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since indeed he is the one God, which is according to our Shema, Israel, the Lord our God is one in Deuteronomy 6.4. He is the one who justifies the circumcision, Jews under the law, from the source of Messiah's faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness, the Messiah's faithfulness. That's what faith is being referred to here, not your personal faith. And he, God, the one who justifies the circumcision, is also the God who justifies the uncircumcision, Gentiles without the law, through the same faithfulness, Messiahs. There's an authoritative teaching. The opponent says, so then. It's true what they say about you, Paul. You're abolishing the law then, aren't you? Destroying Moses' Torah. Through this justifying faithfulness of Messiah. Paul says, of course not. Of course not. We make the Torah stand tall as a testimony to God's saving righteousness and justice through Jesus justifying faithfulness. The law serves that wonderful purpose. It stands tall as a testimony of Jesus' faithfulness. Chapter 4, it's not over. The dialectic of contradictories continues, and the opponent says, well then, and this is hard to translate unless you see the Greek, well then, if the Torah or the law stands tall, in your words, as a testimony of Messiah's fidelity, then what shall we say? about what the Torah says about Abraham, our forefather, according to human lineage, has obtained. What does it say about what Abraham has obtained? Verse 2, Paul didn't say this. This guy said it. For since Abraham was justified by works, uh uh-oh, he has something to boast about, so there. Paul says, but that's not how God sees it. What does the scripture actually say in verse 4, 3? It says, Abraham faithfully trusted God, and God considered this fidelity as rectitude. That is, as a kind of living that God approves. Genesis 15, 6. Verse 4, now the paycheck of the one who works is not calculated according to the principle of grace, but of obligation. You get a paycheck for the work you do. But to the one who is not working, but trusting in the one who rectifies the ungodly, justifies the ungodly, his faithful trust, evoked as it is by God's word, is considered by God as rectitude. A righteous kind of living. In the same way, David describes the blessedness of the man whom God considers to have rectitude. That is, whom God approves apart from works. He says, how blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered over. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord in no way takes into account. Psalm 31 1 to 2 in the Septuagint, 32, 1 to 2 in the English. David knows better than most of us what that means. Blessed is a man whose sins are covered. Paul continues in verse 9. Is this blessedness for the circumcision only? Or is it also for the uncircumcision, literally the foreskin? For the scripture says, God considered Abraham's trustful faith to be rectitude. But when was this account of divine approval made? 
When did God approve of Abraham in this way? When Abraham was in a state of circumcision or in a state of uncircumcision while he still had his foreskin? Well, let me answer for you. Verse 10. The answer is not when he was in a state of circumcision, but when he was in a state of uncircumcision while he still had a foreskin. In fact, in verse 11, he received circumcision as a seal of God's approval of the rectitude of his faithful trust. While in the state of uncircumcision, while he still had a foreskin. In order to be the father of all the uncircumcised, whose faithful trust is also recognized as rectitude. God approved livingness. Verse 12, and at the same time, the father of the circumcised. And not the merely ritually circumcised, but also those who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while still uncircumcised. So then, the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would inherit the universe was not through the law, but through the rectitude of faithfulness. For if those who observe the law are the heirs, then the faithfulness of God is empty and the promise is made ineffective. And that's unthinkable. For the law, verse 15, produces anger in those who observe it with a view to gaining justification by it. And it provokes or challenges others to anger. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is the reason that the promise is fulfilled as a result of Messiah's faithfulness. So that it may be according to grace in order to guarantee the benefit to all of Abraham's descendants, not only to those of the law, but also to those of the faithfulness of Abraham, who is the father or the patriarch of us all. Both circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles have Abraham as their patriarch, and so both are Israel by the Spirit. Remember? Verse 17, just as as it is written in Genesis 17, 5, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. He is our father, Paul says, in the sight of the God whom he trusted, the God who makes the dead to live and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, your justification is by an act of God that made you alive when you were dead. 18, Paul continues and he concludes, for beyond the hope so-called hope, that's presented to our eyes empirically. Abraham still hoped, and he believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to this word that was spoken to him, so shall your seed be. Genesis fifteen five. He carefully considered his own body already dead, being about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in faithful trust. He did not only he not only did not doubt the promise of God, but being strengthened in faith, he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able also to do. For this reason his faithful trust was evaluated by God to be rectitude or God approved livingness. But the words it was accounted to him were written not for him alone, but also for us who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For us also, faithfulness will be accounted by God to be approved livingness, the right way to live. Verse 25, he, Jesus, was handed over. He, Jesus, was handed over. Not the pagans handed over, handed over, handed over. Jesus was handed over for our offenses to take them away is what that means. And he was resurrected for our justification.
I don't know how far we'll get into this, but chapter 5 begins a third increment, Roman numeral 3. I call it all Paul, the unchained gospel. No argument here. This is pure Paul. This is the gospel of God. Therefore, being justified on account of the aforementioned faithfulness, that of Messiah Jesus, faithfulness in which he was willingly handed over and willingly handed himself over to take away our sins and was raised up for our justification, let us enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access into this justifying, sanctifying, and elevating grace in which we stand. And let us boast and boastfully exult in the confident hope of the glory of God. Beyond that, let us also exultingly boast in our tribulations, rather than falsely considering them to be signs of God's disapproval of us, knowing, on the contrary, that by God's loving design, tribulation produces perseverance. The proven character, verse 4, which in turn intensifies and incentivizes hope as an assured expectancy of God's universal glory. And this hope is not just a deferred consolation. It doesn't embarrass you for having it. Because in the meantime, the love of God himself, God's own self-gift, God's gift of his own love has already been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us by the Father and the Son thus granting us a foretaste of the age and the universal glory to come. How can you be ashamed of something in the future when you already have a foretaste of the future? Six, in order to understand just what kind of unparalleled, unqualified, and unrestricted love this love of God is, consider that while we were on the verge of an irreversible death, Christ, in order to save us from that death, died just in time. In behalf of the ungodly. All those described in 310 to 18. With difficulty you can cite examples in history of someone dying for an innocent person. And you may be able to find that someone was brave enough to die for a benevolent person. One's own benefactor. But God demonstrated his love for us. In that while we were still enslaved by and colluding with the Russians, I mean sin, Christ died on behalf of us and in our place. Enduring the ultimate harvest of sin is what this means, where sin would have brought us finally and everlastingly to an incomprehensible death, which people today can only describe as hell. Much more assuredly, verse 9, much more assuredly then, since we have now been justified by Christ's blood. That is, his redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying death as God's paschal lamb we will be saved from this aforementioned wrath that you're so high on, opponent, through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, made his friends through his son's death, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? justified by his resurrection, saved by his life. Not only that, but we also boast in God. Not because of any achievement or action on our own. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. I'll go through chapter 5. That'll be it, starting with verse 12. Therefore, through one man, sin, as a cosmic power, entered into the world. And on account of sin, death. And thus dead death 
spread like a contagion through all human beings as is clearly presented by the symptom that everybody sins. The symptom of the disease is sin. And everybody sins. Especially those who say, I have no sin. <laughs> That's just, I added that, sorry. Strike it, even though it is 1 John 1 8. In verse 13, indeed, sin as a power was in the world before the law, before the Torah was even given through Moses. It was in, sin was in the world. But sin, small s I N, that is, as an individual transgression, is not charged to one's account where there is no law. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death, capital D-E-A-T-H, reigned as king from Adam, through whom sin came as a power, and death because of sin, until Moses, through whom the law came, intensifying sin's hold, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's particular transgression. You see, Adam transgressed as a violation of the direct divine command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, therefore, is a type or an anticipation of him, the antitype, Jesus Christ, who, is to, who was to come. Verse 15 now. I'll read all the way through 21 and we'll close for tonight. However, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, that's all human beings, then how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to enrich the many with life by the grace, that is the faithfulness, the faithful obedience to the extent of death or the blood, however you want to say it, of the one man, Jesus Christ. It overflowed and superabounded even much more to the many. The unconditional gift in verse 16 is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. On the one hand, one sin, brought, and this has to be supplied here, the universal sentence of condemnation. Because he's talking about a sentence passed on all humankind. But on the other hand, the gift, coming after many trespasses, brought the universal sentence of justification. For if by the trespass of the one, it says, if by the trespass of the one, death reigned through that one, that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life with death dethroned, that means, through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, verse 18, as through one sin came condemnation to all people, I said a universal judgment, of condemnation through one man, all the sons of Adam, back to Psalm 14.2 and 53.2 is where he's referring here. So the righteous act of one, Jesus Christ, through the righteous act of one came the justification of life to all people, all the sons of Adam, all humanity in all time. Again, Psalm 14.2 and 53.2. So through the righteous act of one, Jesus Christ, came the justification of all people. That's a repeat of verse 18. But 19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, many, meaning all, in conjunction with verse 18, were constituted as sinners. So also through the obedience of the one, the many, that is all, were constituted as righteous. We're going to look at that in Isaiah 53, 11. Moreover, the Mosaic law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass would actually increase more sins would be committed. But where sin abounded in its production, grace superabounded with the harvest much, much more, thus bringing about a much greater good than if Adam had not disobeyed 
And if sin had not entered into the world and spread its plague throughout the human race. To the end, verse 21, that just as sin, capital S-I-N, as a power, reigned like a king in death, that is over the whole human race, so now grace will reign as king through righteousness or God's saving justice, resulting in eternal life, a created participation in divine life in the whole human race through Jesus Christ our Lord. And may I speak for Paul, thank you opponent, for the opportunity to preach the real gospel. Amen for tonight. We'll begin chapter 6 on subsequent readings. Maybe, maybe we'll do with that on Wednesdays. And you already know that probably will not be done. So, Because we'll I want to get the doctrine on Sundays. But thank you, Father. I do pray, after all this labor that you have engineered and that you have engendered, and all this teamwork that we've all enjoyed this study of Romans now for years together, that you'll bring about the meaning of that grace reigning in righteousness, right? reigning through your saving justice, and that it will be riveted in all of our hearts. And may, most of all, the love of God poured out in our hearts be our policy and our dynamic with others so that we don't take the insights we've learned and use them to browbeat those who may not have those insights, but so that we may love one another. We ask this in Christ's name.